Lance Megas, and you're listening to the Worth Day Podcast. Our goal is to uplift and inspire through insightful conversation. With a little bit of humor and years of life experience, we'll be covering topics of personal growth, mental, and emotional well-being. Today, we're exploring perfectionism. Are you or someone you know a perfectionist? What is the difference between perfectionism and excellence? If you tend to beat yourself up with harsh criticism, don't bounce back from your mistakes, and or you don't celebrate your achievements, you may be a perfectionist. You don't have to sacrifice standards to feel like a winner. Before we dive into our main topic today about perfection and excellence, if you have any questions regarding this or one of our episodes, contact us at worthday.net or email us at info at worthday.net. We're discussing perfectionism, how to identify it, how to harness and transform some of the positive aspects of perfectionism into excellence. Hey, Cal, how do you know if you're a perfectionist? Well, you know, it might be useful to start this conversation with a caveat. You know, perfectionism is like most personality traits. It lies on a spectrum. You know, it seems like you'd either be a perfectionist or not. Well, you know, perfectionism can be a trait for obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which is also known as OCPD, but it can also be a behavior quirk that's not compulsive. It's really important to note that you can be a perfectionist and not have a personality disorder. You can seek perfection while remaining psychologically healthy. Hey, that's interesting. You know, in fact, my understanding is is that most of us who have tendencies towards perfectionism don't have OCPD. You know, absolutely, Lance. You know, perfectionism alone does not qualify someone as being clinically OCPD. OCPD requires pathological tendencies to be present, and that would likely involve significant impairments in personal and or interpersonal functioning. Hey, you said um, that OCPD requires pathological tendencies. What are these pathological tendencies? Well, first of all, I want to let everybody know I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm not trying to give anyone any uh, advice or diagnosis. But just to put this whole thing in perspective, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders has a definition of perfectionism, which um, I'm going to quote. He says it's characterized by, quote, rigid insistence on everything being flawless, perfect, without errors or faults, including one's own and others' performance, sacrificing of timeliness to ensure correctness in every detail, believing that there is only one right way to do things, difficulty changing ideas and or viewpoint, and preoccupation with details, organization, and order. Yeah, now that's a mouthful. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you beat me to it. It does make sense, though, but what are some of the general traits? Because you talked about a spectrum. So how to identify what end of the spectrum someone may be on? Not to beat this to death, but we're not attempting to do any kind of personality diagnosis here for anyone. So if you suspect that you have OCPD or you just want to understand yourself better, please consider seeking out a professional for input, like a psychologist or psychiatrist, you know, for additional clarification. And don't rely solely on what we're saying here. 
You know, I've read that Susan Albers Boeing, doctor of psychology, said the key difference between perfectionism being a simple personality trait or it being a personality disorder has to do with how you feel about your behaviors and rituals. Yeah, and she differentiated between the OCPD traits of perfectionism <laughs> as people who may want to stop the behavior and simply can't. Their behaviors feel out of their control. But conversely, she finds the personality uh, end of the spectrum of perfectionism as people who often don't want to stop the behaviors because it brings a sense of reward or order to their life. And it, it doesn't actually control their life. Okay, so it could be OCPD if the behavior controls the individual to a point that they can't stop it even if they wanted to. And it's likely a personality trait if you can control the behavior. So, for example... Let's say you like to have your closet organized by color because it brings a sense of order to your life. And the reward might be that you can find things easier, more quickly you can select your your outfit that you're planning on wearing. Uh, So in that case, you're probably on the personality trait of the spectrum. So yeah, I think of Beethoven as a perfectionist, and yet it didn't inhibit his ability to create amazing masterpieces. You know, and speaking from a layman's point of view, I think that that would make it a personality trait. And yet anyone else who may be on the other end of the spectrum might experience paralysis and not get anything done. And that could be OCPD. And that level of perfectionism is is self-defeating. So if we use the guideline that a reward or sense of order means perfectionism is a personality trait, that could be confusing. Because in some ways, I think anyone can identify with a reward being tied to their behavioral choices. That's a really good point, you know, because... And that's why we're suggesting that anyone that's curious or confused or both to seek professional opinion to get additional clarification. So today we're talking about perfectionism versus excellence. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the three ways perfectionism can present itself. back and talking about perfectionism. Yakal, I understand there are different kinds of perfectionism. Yes, the the American Psychological Association published a study in 2017 by Coran and Hill, and they said that there are three different types of perfectionism, self-directed, socially prescribed, and other-oriented. Okay, that first one, self-directed, that sounds like a person who might expect a whole lot from themselves. And it is, uh, it, just as the name implies. It, it means that perfectionism is directed toward the self, and it can manifest as holding unrealistic expectations of themselves. Yeah, I mean, attaching irrational importance to being perfect. And judging themselves so harshly that they can be punitive in their self-evaluations. So when a self-directed perfectionist fails to achieve perfection, they'll often admonish themselves with harsh criticism excessively, and as we discussed earlier, they're less likely to bounce back from mistakes. And they're less like also less likely to celebrate their achievements or to take pride in improving on their personal best. You know, perfectionists will often feel that they're either a winner or a failure. So the second type of perfectionism, the socially prescribed, sounds like it could feel like others are imposing expectations on us. Exactly. Socially prescribed perfectionism is when individuals believe that their social context is excessively demanding and or that others are judging them harshly. And they may also 
feel that they have to display perfection in order to secure approval from others. So here I think the emphasis is actually on belief. You know, outer forces may not actually be demanding, judging, or needing of their approval, but a person can certainly feel or think that it's present. I can see that, but, you know, I think it's really important that if a person feels that others are expecting a lot from them, then we don't invalidate that feeling. And, you know, we don't invalidate ourselves either if that's what we're experiencing because feelings are real and they need to be treated that way. Absolutely. You know, we should pursue our own standards of excellence and and not be concerned with what we believe others expect. You know, I feel this could really help us be a lot more at peace with what we choose as our focus. You know, and if you think that you might be experiencing a, a form of socially prescribed perfectionism, you can ask yourself a couple of questions to help clarify. For instance, you can ask, am I seeking outside approval or am I seeking excellence? You can also ask, is this about how I feel or what I'm wanting to achieve? So focusing on our excellence rather than what society or socially prescribed norms are dictating could be very self-empowering. There you go. So the second one, socially prescribed, and then the third one, other orientated, they sound similar to me. What's the difference? Well, socially prescribed comes from the outside in. It means that standards to which we hold ourselves are coming from society, peers, family. And conversely, other oriented is perfectionism uh, is presented when an individual directs expectations at others. Basically, they impose unrealistic standards on those around them and evaluate others critically. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, got it. It does. Is anyone here from a military family? Or yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. okay, so I was raised by a Marine sergeant. So I yep. Yeah, Air, Air Force. Force. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in summary, we could say standards to which perfectionists hold themselves or others are not only unrealistic, demanding, and often impossible to achieve, they can be self-imposed, influenced by our social circles, and or imposed onto others, you know, to the point of being self-defeating. So I'm wondering, why do you interrupt that impulse to just keep pushing forward? I mean, when it's obviously self-defeating and you're aware of it, but you don't know how to stop and change course. So let me help you out here, G-Pod. I'm going to interrupt you and we're going to change course (laughs) (laughs) by taking a quick break. He's so thoughtful. (laughs) And when we return, we're going to discuss how to transform this propensity for perfectionism into excellence. We're back to discuss how to transform the propensity for perfectionism into excellence. And before the break, I was so rudely interrupted by Lance. <laughs> Just trying to help out. She's so thoughtful. <laughs> I you, I, I yeah, man. How do you change course when we're in a self-defeating cycle? That's a really great question, G-Podgy. You know, when you realize that you're beating yourself up, that's the moment you stop and pause. You've got to remember that negative thoughts are harmless unless you choose to believe them. And we've all been there at some point in time. But in the mind of the self-defeated perfectionist, it's better to sit out the race than to suffer the shame and humiliation of imperfection. And it's very easy to get pulled down into a negative self-defeating cycle. So I would actually recommend Byron Katie's four-question process that she outlined in her book, 
Loving What Is. If you want more information and a link to her book, it's available on our website, worthday.net. I absolutely suggest that you take a look at Byron Katie's book on her website. Michelle, can you summarize for us the four questions process? Sure. Um, so again, when you become aware of, the, of negative and or self-defeating thoughts, you ask yourself four questions. And the first one is, is it true? Is it true? You know, but I think it's very important that when we answer that question, it is with complete honesty. Ironically, that leads me to the second question, which is, can you know that it's absolutely true? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> it could just be an inaccurate belief that you're holding about yourself that you could have formulated in childhood that just simply came from a misinterpretation of events or circumstances, and somehow you just hung on to it unconsciously, but it no longer serves you. Exactly. You know, and if your belief is inaccurate, not only could it be limiting, but it could also impact you emotionally, mentally, and or physically. And that actually brings me to question number three, which is how do you react? What happens when you believe that negative thought? And you will probably become aware of an emotional feeling that can range anywhere from mild discomfort to fear or even panic if you let it go that far. You know, my experience is that a lot of the physical sensations we actually experience are just frozen emotions that have become trapped in our physiologies. So we're asking, what do you feel? We're asking, how do you treat yourself and others when you believe that negative thought? And I don't think it comes as a surprise when we believe those negative thoughts. We don't feel good. I mean, you'd have to be a masochist. You know, I think it also would easily make a person feel blue about themselves, their future, or the world in general. And I also think that it could contribute to a person's self-esteem. It shouldn't actually be surprising that psychologists actually link negative thinking to depression, anxiety, and chronic worry, and even obsessive compulsive disorders. I can't even imagine feeling happy with all this negative self-talk chattering around inside my head. And that actually brings us to the fourth question, g Who would you be without the negative thought? And I certainly think about that around my birthday. I'd certainly prefer not to know how old I am. I mean, <laughs> with all its social expectations for who and what I should be at, at any particular age. So, you know, if you closed your eyes and you imagined yourself without that feeling, the thought, how would you be different? How would you feel? I mean, how old would I actually feel or be without all those thoughts and beliefs? And which one do you prefer, the life with or without that thought? Which one feels kinder and more peaceful? Yeah, there's those that say there is no such thing as a dumb question, but I know which one I would Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> so after a short break, we'll be right back to talk about something called the 80-20 rule and how to use it to harness perfectionist tendencies into excellence. We're back talking about how to harness perfectionist tendencies into excellence and how the 80-20 rule might play a role. Well, the 80-20 rule, or the uh, Pareto Principle, is also known as the law of the vital few or the principle of sparsity, depending on what discipline you're looking at it from. But basically what it means is that 20% of your efforts yield 80% of your results. Or another way to state that would be 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. Correct. And for those who are interested to know, 
The 80-20 rule was coined by Italian economist Fredo Pareto in 1896 when he, he observed 80% of the land in Italy was owned by only 20% of the population. You know, he also observed that 20% of his plants were bearing 80% of the fruit. That's true. So, and I think it's important to note here that the 80-20 rule isn't a formalized mathematical equation, but a principle or guideline. So if we're pursuing excellence, we need to identify that critical 20% to focus on that will yield us the 80% results. Very good point, Lance. And on the other hand, though, if you're a perfectionist, you might notice that you're spending 80% of your time and energy to obtain only 20% or less results. You know, speaking of less results, if you think about it, the more we intensify our focus and work harder, eventually we'll experience diminishing returns. That's true. And a good example of that might be studying for an exam. You can put so much effort into this, thus feeling frustration and or anxiety, and your ability to recall information is decreased. But the frustration and the anxiety, they continue to build. So using the 80-20 rule can really help us identify what activities will actually be the most fruitful or influential, thus helping the perfectionist avoid these common rabbit holes or possibly complete functional paralysis. And speaking of functional paralysis, I think they might have an example that people can relate to. You know, I used to be late all the time. And at some point, I realized that being late was disrespectful for those who were waiting for me. So I decided to figure out why I was always late, because I, I didn't know. And I discovered that I was trying to do too much in the allotted time before needing to leave. So now what I do is I identify those things that have to be done in order to leave and be on time. And I do those first. Uh, an example would be if I'm going on a date, I do everything that needs to be done to be ready for the date. And if there's additional time, then I do some of the other things that are on my list. That's a good example because focusing on what's most important or prioritizing is the key to applying the 80-20 rule. So then that first step is identifying the 20%. There you go. And the big question is, how would you go about identifying the 20% you need to focus on? You know, one option would be to use tools that uh, would help you logically and systematically go through what's needed. Um, I like to use tools myself because it removes the emotion out of the process and it keeps me focused and helps uh, to avoid going down the, as Lance stated, the common rabbit holes. And, and one useful tool that, that I really like is the Eisenhower matrix. You know, I've heard of that. Was that um, developed by President Eisenhower? It was, and he actually used the matrix when he was a five-star general during World War II and also as a supreme commander of NATO and the 34th president. So it, he said it enabled him to successfully manage many projects simultaneously. And the priorities are ranked by two criteria. Uh, one of them is urgency and the other is importance. And, you know, as the name implies, he said urgent tasks are the ones that require your immediate attention. You know, when something's urgent, it needs to be done now. Otherwise, there are very clear consequences. And he identified important tasks as ones that need to be accomplished to meet your objectives, although they aren't critical to be done right away. Yeah, so let's put this in perspective. I think a good analogy would be we have first responders who arrive at a traffic accident. They find four victims. One victim is bleeding from the neck, and the second victim is bleeding from the fingers. The third victim seems to be okay, but you're not really sure. And then there's a fourth victim who is obviously deceased, okay? So from that EMT's point of view at that time, 
the victim bleeding from the neck is going to be deemed urgent and important, and they must be dealt with immediately. Okay, so then the person bleeding from the fingers, they're going to be deemed urgent, but not important, and they can be delegated to someone else. The person who appears to be okay outwardly, they're deemed important, and they're going to need attention, but they're not urgent, and, you know, they can be transported to the hospital, you know, and evaluated at a later time. Okay, and since this is from the scenarios from the EMT's point of view at that time, the person who's obviously deceased is not urgent and not important because there's nothing that that EMT can do for that person at that time. We have a visual aid on our website, worthday.net, of GPAW's EMT example, if anybody's interested. But let's briefly cover the matrix structure. As, as we said, there are two primary criteria, urgency and importance. Now, urgency is the horizontal axis that goes across the page, and importance is the vertical axis that goes up and down on the page. And these two lines intersect that create four quadrants. So it's like there's a big plus sign in the middle of a square creating four equal blocks. Exactly, yes. You know, For example, the upper left quadrant is going to be the most important, and that would be what's urgent and important. And the lower left is still urgent, but it's not as important. So let's plug GPA's analogy into this visual aid. So the upper left, which is what's urgent and important, would be represented by the victim bleeding from the neck. The lower left is what is urgent but not important, which is the victim bleeding from the fingers. The upper right is important and not urgent. That's the victim that will be evaluated later at the hospital. And finally, the lower right, which is not urgent and not important, would be the victim who is obviously deceased. So another example, just bringing this closer to home, pun intended, would be if you're working from home and a water pipe burst. In that case, the upper left is what's urgent and important would be to get the water shut off as soon as possible. And the lower left would be what's urgent and not important would be possibly to clean up the mess. Yeah, you certainly want to avoid any potential mishaps like falling or any further physical damage to the property. Exactly. And in the upper right is the important and not urgent. That would be to schedule, for example, a repairman and or to contact your insurance company. Because eventually you need to get your water turned back on, and then you also need to file a claim to cover your costs. And finally, the lower right is that what's not urgent and not important. And, and the things that would fall into that quadrant would be previously scheduled meetings or phone calls you know, that you can deal with at a later time. So we can see how Eisenhower's matrix is a way to identify the critical 20% to prioritize and break down a seemingly overwhelming task into bite-sized pieces. Because... Everything in life that seems daunting or overwhelming and even impossible can be accomplished gradually by taking just a little bit at a time. You know, as Desmond Tutu once wisely said, there is only one way to eat an elephant, one bite at a time. (laughs) So in summary today, we've talked about perfectionism, what it is, and that perfectionism lies on a spectrum. We identified three types of perfectionism. And we also looked at various ways to address these perfectionist tendencies within ourselves. And we discussed utilizing tools like the Pareto Principle and the Eisenhower Matrix to help us identify ways we can transform any self-defeating perfectionist tendencies into excellence. 
And that wraps up our show for today. You've been well, listening that wraps to the Workday Podcast. You've been listening if you have a question or comment about our show, we'd love to hear you. If you have a question or comment about our show, please contact us on our website at workday.net.